Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. We're heading off to Australia and New Zealand, where we will be appearing live and recording an episode in Christchurch on the 11th of May, Auckland on the 14th of May, Wellington on the 15th of May, Adelaide on the 18th of May, Perth on the 20th, Sydney on the 23rd, Melbourne on the 25th, Brisbane on the 27th, and finally Canberra on the 28th of May. So get in and get your tickets now. They are going very fast. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com and just click on live shows for any of these events. I'm a feminist, but I'm not jealous of Jennifer Aniston's complete financial autonomy, but I am jealous that she has a spray tan booth in her house. She has a booth and she can just walk in. Amazing. Press a button. Shh. That glow she has, that yeah. golden, bronzed, glamorous glow. I don't know. It must be a bugger to clean. <laughs> I love that you think Jennifer Aniston cleans her own spray tan booth. <laughs> she's on her hands and knees scrubbing away. She's a down-to-earth woman. She wouldn't let someone else do that. Would she? she I would, would let yeah. someone else do that. Okay. Of course Jennifer Aniston would okay. let someone else do that. I'm a feminist, but... I'm worried that my daughter will be tall and then men won't pick her up and spin her around like they do with small women. As a small woman, I know that we say this is annoying to tall women so as not to upset them. But it isn't. It's really fun. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Everyone says she's going to be tall. That's the end of the show, go <laughs> That has actually broken my heart. I'm so sorry. I'm it's so sorry. It's never going to happen to me. I mean, it's never going to happen to it's me. It's all literally, everyone keeps going, oh, she'll be so tall. My first thought was, oh, people won't pick her up and spin her around. <laughs> what, like in, like in movies and, you know, yeah. on the beach where... People pick me up a lot. I'm, Do they? Yeah, because I'm five foot three. I, it's Do, a lot. I wouldn't dare, though. I wouldn't just oh. sort of think I'll pick you up. You'd be surprised. <laughs> I mean, I will now. <laughs> well, I wanna, yeah, I do. You know, You'd be surprised spin. at how confident men are. They do. They no. just come along and they just pick you up. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I'm yet again surprised <laughs> by how confident men are. Yeah, that's true. Wow. But that does feel a little bit like they're undermining your... Yeah, they are, but it is fun. <laughs> In your head, you're like... That's why you play this game. That's why you play this game. Because you're like, oh, no, don't. But then the other side, you're like, <laughs> spinning them tiny. <laughs> it's fun. I'm a feminist, but I would commit to reading a men's rights activist Twitter feed every single day of my life if it meant I never looked any older. <laughs> I'm really sorry about it. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed because there's nothing wrong with looking older. And I look at older women and I think yeah. they look so beautiful. Women older than me, women younger than me, women the same age as me, whatever that age is. <laughs> and this week... And I do, and I look at them and I don't see that in other people, but I sort of... Mm. I worry I'm going to not recognise my face anymore. No, I, I totally understand. My mother says, she said sometimes she'll catch herself in a shop window or a, yeah. an unexpected mirror and yeah. apparently over a certain age an unexpected mirror is terrifying because <laughs> yeah. you just go who's that oh it's not me and she's still expecting to see herself yeah. looking like herself that's what's happened since I had a baby like I look oh, in the mirror no on. seriously I look in the mirror and I go what happened to the youthful happy person and then there's just a very tired lady yeah but your baby is very small now she's very small how old is she she's five months yeah. When she's five she, years old. She's not she's... sleeping, guys. <laughs> That's what everyone went, oh, it's five months, you're not sleeping. No, no. no. But when she's five years old, she'll be out of the house all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she'll just like, they have to go Straight out the to whole work. week. Straight to work. They go out the whole week. I'm a feminist, but 
If a man was as repulsed by period blood as I am by jizz, I would think he was ignorant and sexist. But I still think jizz is really gross. <laughs> I know, it's awful, isn't it? I talk a lot about periods in my comedy. I do a lot of work for sanitary product charities. She does. She does. I do. There's lots of people who buy sanitary products for refugees or women who can't afford them and deliver them around London. And if you Google bloody good period, they've talked to you as well. They're a really good charity. And I get very passionate about it. And if anyone says, eh, periods, I'm like, shame on you. It's natural. But if I see jizz... <laughs> And that's what I do when it, it's hitting that way, you know. <laughs> Sorry, I know it's great. No, I've just thought of an I'm a feminist, but I haven't, <laughs> hadn't planned to do. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but someone gave me an enormous bag of sanitary towels to give to Cariad to give to a refuge. And I got my period. <laughs> and discovered I'd run out. And I broke into the secret stash <laughs> of sanitary napkins for underprivileged women, not disorganised privileged ones. And I, and I used four. I replaced them three weeks later <laughs> when I remembered because I got my period again. And then I thought, I can't do it again. But when you get your period, you know, it's not the time you want to be going to the shop and, you know, That's doing all that. That's hilarious. Like, I'm you so sorry. You kept saying to me, oh, I'm going to give you these sanitary towels. I give them to you, take them to the refuge. I was like, yeah, great, great. No, I just took them to the refuge myself in the end. I was just so embarrassed. I thought, That's I can't hilarious. give you this bag with an open no, packet someone, in. A little mouse had a period, did it? Little mouse been nibbling away at these sanitary towels. You should donate some money to a period charity to yes. atone. I will. Okay. Like... It's like six Hail Marys. It's yeah, like, yeah. <gasps> feminist... Okay, so we could set this up. Yeah. Offset guilty feminism. Oh, by paying to so, feminist charities. Yeah. yeah, so you do something where you go, that really wasn't very feminist. Yeah. So say, for example, you gossip about a woman yeah. and you like, fuck her. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, that feels really inherently unfeminist. Like, she was just doing her job. Okay, she's ambitious. Sometimes she can be mean, it's true. But she's trying to make her way in the world. She's just forceful. If she was a man, would I say the same thing? Exactly. If it was a man, I might find it cute that she'd pick me up and spun me around and throw me into a bin. (laughs) But because it's a woman, I'm all like, why did she do that? She's such a bitch. So I am now going to give £25 to... Bloody Good Period. Bloody Good Period. Yeah, they're really good. You can donate money and you can literally buy tampons and sanitary towels and send them to a Boots and then she picks them up and she goes and delivers them Mm. to asylum seekers living here or people who can't afford them. I'm going to do that. I've got two. I'm just trying to decide what... I'm just planning now all of the things that I can do that are really unfeminist (laughs) because I now know how to offset the guilt. I'm a feminist, but... In a way, getting pregnant was just a convenient way not to get jizz everywhere. <laughs> I know, sorry, there was two jizz in a row. I nearly didn't do it, but I thought, oh, why not? Um, no, I like a runner. <laughs> Live from King's Place in London, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with Deborah Francis-White and guest co-host Marion Lloyd and very special guest Gemma Arterton talking about a man's world. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. Okay, uh, so our topic for today is a man's world. So we're going to be exploring what does that mean? Why do people call it a man's world? When do we feel it's a man's world? Is that changing? All of those questions are going to be asked and answered until we come to conclusive 
set in stone answers. Uh, when we leave here tonight, we're going to know the answers for sure. And we're going to have a set of notes to take forward into the future. And we'll, you know, look, we'll do a copy, we'll pass them around, you tell your friends in the other years, and then everyone knows. Great. <laughs> anyone wearing a good T-shirt? We had some really good T-shirts the other night. Is anyone wearing a feminist T-shirt? Yes, what's your say? Stop telling women to smile. Oh. That's great. There was, a, um, there was another T-shirt someone another said. Another T-shirt? Who had another T-shirt? Yes, what's yours? Oh, it's not a T-shirt. It's the back of my leather jacket. What does it wow, say? Wow, that's the coolest voice ever. It's not a T-shirt. It's the back of my leather <laughs> my jacket. My leather jacket. And I sure. killed a man to get this. <laughs> <laughs> I skinned him and made the jacket. What does it say on the back of the jacket? Oh, it says feminist. Oh, it sorry. Says feminist. It's, very, it's very dark. It's hard to see yeah, feminism yeah. sometimes. So it's a black leather jacket with feminist written on the back. Oh, amazing. It's a hot pink leather jacket. <laughs> I am going to need to see that closer, up closer. Anybody else got anything to declare? We decided to do charity of the week. Has anyone got a charity they'd like to tell us about? Yeah. Yes, brilliant. Stand up. Do you take donations? Yeah. Great. So tonight, if you want to stand at the door, we'll get you a sort of pint glass or something, and then people can donate to your charity on the way out. And don't worry, because we'll put the lady with the biker jacket next to you to protect you. Yeah. If like, we could have a hot pink feminist yeah. jacket, that would be great. My manager was the person who introduced me to this podcast. Oh. So, shout out we, to Claire. We love her. <laughs> yeah. So I work for a charity called Peace Direct, and we support local peace builders across the world, and the whole idea is that local people have the answers and we aren't going to come in there as Western saviours and we support them to do what they need to do in their communities. And we work in sort of war-torn communities and we do a lot of work with women and all that good stuff. <laughs> she works with women. I definitely, definitely work with women. Half of the peace builders are women and half of the people you're helping are women. And lots of them are men, which is also important. Also important. Also important. Yeah. And children, presumably. Yes child soldiers and rehabilitating them and microfinance projects with women and like supporting women in politics and stuff like that so could you give us the url yeah uh, www.peacedirect.org peacedirect.org peacedirect.org okay it sounds a bit like insurance yeah, it does. Does it not? It sounds like first direct, but you know, if thank if, you, if I was you're... like, there's something called direct. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what is I, it? I'm first imagining direct. Stephen Fry advertising it, but yeah. it's like insurance for when like you've had an argument with somebody, and that... <laughs> or when your peace building has fallen down. Yes, absolutely. you need peace direct. Have so you got peace insurance? <laughs> peace direct. dot org, so people can donate there. And tonight, if anyone would like to donate, there'll be both. What's your name? I'm Kate. Kate, and what's the name of the woman in the pink jacket? Anna. Anna, we love you, we Anna, love you. so much. <laughs> I mean, everyone just wants to be your friend so much yeah. right now. You are very much a Rizzo yeah. to my Sandra D. Yeah. That's, I'm so Sandy. I also feel like she was in every 90s sitcom ever as the cool older sister that like wouldn't settle down but like had to get out of town but would turn up occasionally to help the kids learn about who they were. We're projecting quite a lot, Anna. <laughs> and by we, I think their carriage, you do mean you. You said I, she was Rizzo. I, okay, fair. You okay. projected Rizzo. Fair, but I didn't have a full narrative about how she comes into town I twice know. a month. But that's because Greece already gave you the narrative. No, no, that's true, that's true. I was what, thinking what? Party of Five. Uh, I don't, I don't oh, yeah. want to say what do you do, Anna, but I sort of want to say something along those lines, like how do you define yourself? Because I expect it's not through your job. Oh, I'm a feminist and my job is to be a feminist. Oh, God, I love her. I love her so much. Come on. Okay. That is the best answer. She's I'm going to say that. She's I'm a chartered feminist. Yeah. 
I'm gonna say, if anyone says now, what do you, I'm a feminist and it's my job to be a feminist. It's my fucking job yeah. to be a feminist, all right? See, now, she's the cool older sister and today we yeah. learned something. Now get on my bike, because yeah, we're gonna do feminist shit. Yeah. Do you want to come on the stage, Anna? Yeah. Big round of applause for Anna. Yeah, keep clapping. Oh, yes. Okay, great. I thought you were going to come and sit here, but I'm thrilled that you've taken. No, no, of course you've done that. That's the right thing to do. Anna does what she wants. Anna doesn't sit down ever. Are you? Is Anna lit? Yeah. Okay. She's lit and woke. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay, hi, I'm Anna, and I am the founder of an organization called Verve, and we are women who have Verve, and we're women who give a fuck, and our tagline is an international collective of badass feminists, and we we kind of we try to make it fun to have a purpose, a feminist purpose, and we. You do make it fun. (laughs) Right. So we do all kinds of things. We have a couple of really fundamental charities that we support. Fistula Foundation, I don't know if you know what obstetric fistulas are, but if you don't, look it up. It's a terrible, debilitating, ostracizing condition that women go through in pregnancy, childbirth, often teen mothers. And another one that is working on eradicating female genital mutilation, which they've been extremely effective in Senegal and Ghana. And we also do fun things like we have coming up, Think It, Ink It, and we're having a tattoo party, and we're all going to get, like, oh feminist tattoos. She's the coolest. She's so What's cool. What's a tattoo party, yeah. though? What's a tattoo party? Will you get a tattoo? Yeah. So all of you who are a little gun-shy, we're going to gun have temporary shy. tattoos. Gun-shy, that's what she's called. It. That's so cool. Gun-shy. That's, that's an American expression. Gun-shy. Gun-shy. My charity, Gun-shy. <laughs> Uh, we'll be meeting in the other room in the conference centre. Uh, so what, we all have to have tattoos done. We've got temporary ones as well for those who I'm, are feeling yeah, a good. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, but yeah, good. I, yeah. I am getting painless temporary. tattooed and there are like four or five other people who have agreed to do that. I'm getting nevertheless she persists. <gasps> Oh, nevertheless, she persisted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're kind of keeping it on theme. Sure. But we do monthly Prosecco think tanks where a bunch of different women get together. Why are we not all Anna's best friend? Anna, Prosecco think tanks. That is what the government should be running. That's what we've needed all this time. Jesus, Prosecco think that is the best idea I've ever heard. And Yolanda came up with it. She's in the audience too. Yeah. So I mean, really, our collective in the think tanks, we get together and we talk about what feminism means to us. We talk about coming up with call to actions. Can we, we do a crossover a episode between Verve and the Guilty Feminist? I, you don't even know. I just, I, <laughs> I so just cool. shit my She's pants like, a me. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like that the Guilty Feminist Verve Collective have spontaneously appeared in tattoo form on my upper shoulder. <laughs> so I and I just wanted to say that I'm 47 years old and talking about Guilty Feminist, I'm... The way I offset all of my Botox and fillers and uh, innumerable things that I do to delay the aging process, every time I get something done, I give the same amount to a woman's charity. Um, Which I think is a really... Hashtag what would Anna do? (laughs) 
gonna we'll set up a special episode. There will be prosecco. Um, you bring your prosecco. I'm gonna bring my gospel choir. We're gonna make this happen. Big round of applause for Anna. Thank you very much. Please welcome to the stage, Deborah Francis White. So uh, we're talking about a man's world this week, and I would like to kind of do a social experiment. I'd like someone here to volunteer, ideally to do a social experiment. This is something that probably many people here could do. I'd like somebody here within the next year to have twin boys. <laughs> I'm, listen, if you weren't going to have a baby anyway, then obviously I'm not enforcing that on you. But if anyone is thinking about having a baby, is anyone up for having twin boys? IVF ups your chances. Okay, no takers yet, but stick with me, because... I feel like when you hear the experiment, you're going to think it's worth your while. What I'd like you to do is have twin baby boys, and I'd like you to call one Al, and I'd like you to call the other one Bob, okay? And they need to be identical twins. That's key to the experiment. So if you come back to me with fraternal twins, I'm not going to be interested. I'm just going to be like, you did that, that's on you, that's on your time. I'm not helping. So I'm going to need someone here to have identical twin boys and then uh, call them Alan Bob. And then um, when they're about seven years of age, I want you to say, well, you boys are probably old enough for some pocket money now, so you've got some money to go down the sweet shop. And I want you to give Al a pound a week and I want you to give Bob 78 pence <laughs> every week. Just do it every week. And, it, and if Bob notices, deny it. Just be like, no, that didn't happen. No. That didn't happen. If he continues to say, no, but he's getting more than me and he's got more to spend at the shop, start to say things like, well, he just does his, uh, his chores a bit better than you. Like, you know, when I ask him to tidy his toys away, they're just, just better. And then he'll start trying to be better. You know, he'll start tidying faster and neatly and he'll start saying, look at that, look at that. And you'll go, mm, there's a quality to Al's though, isn't there? <laughs> That he's just, it's just something, he's just better at that sort of thing. <laughs> he's just predisposed to be good at the tidying. And the way he gets his books and his shoes ready for school in the morning, it's just, there's something about it. It has an authority that yours lacks, Bob. <laughs> and I want you to continue down this path uh, with Bob trying hard. Bob will probably try harder because he'll sort of think, you know, somehow I can get it right, somehow I can get it right. Al might slack off a bit, but that's fine. I want you to keep it up going, no, Al... Al is worth that pound, and you are worth 78 pence. And if he really kicks off, probably about eight, probably about eight years of age, then in that case, you can start to say, well, look, I think probably you're, you know, you're right, you need to be heard. And probably maybe it would be good if one of you supervised the other one's chores. <laughs> so at this point, I'd like you to bring into the social experiment the interview round. <laughs> and I'd like you to interview Al and interview Bob. But Al's interview for the position of supervisor of Bob, should be very chummy, should be very pally. I mean, I, mean, I think he's got more leadership skills. I think he's just sort of essentially better, and I think you should make that clear to Al. And Bob, you know, where his interview should be quite rigorous. He should probably have to do a PowerPoint presentation of some sort <laughs> to demonstrate why he'd be good. And, you know, if he in some way is nervous or anxious, you should point that out to him and tell him... He needs confidence. <laughs> what's wrong with him? I mean, what's wrong with him? Why isn't he as confident as Al? Al's got a certain swagger. And that's what we like about Al. And it's what makes him a good leader. 
And I think at that point, you should probably give Al the job. I think it's... I mean, I think we knew we were probably all decided that it was going to be Al, but it's good to give Bob a hearing. It's important that Bob feels included, and it's important that Bob is seen and heard for the position. Then Al should start supervising Bob, and, and Al should not be unkind to Bob, but just sort of, you know, point out where he sees Bob is lacking. Perhaps some kind of 360 feedback process where Bob is coached by Al. And it's at this point that I would like you to institute the hamster section of the project. (laughs) I want you to give Al and Bob two pet hamsters. They are the joint responsibility of Al and Bob, and it's very key that they know that. They are joint owners of the hamsters. The hamsters belong to both Al and Bob, but Bob should do 85% of the work. (laughs) And Bob might now go, well, great, well, I've got extra responsibility now. How much am I going to get paid for this? Explain to Bob that hamster care is worth nothing. (laughs) It pays nothing. But the hamsters cannot be left alone at all unless the boys are at school and at that point you will provide hamster care. But other than that, they must be nurtured around the clock. Bob cannot go out without the hamsters. Al can go out whenever he wants. Um, Sometimes he'll probably agree to take Bob and the hamsters, but not very often. Now, they are jointly owned by Al and Bob, so it's very important that Al feels he has full ownership over those hamsters. And although he doesn't clean out the cage or prepare the food or give them the food or do any of those things, I think it's important that he plays with the hamsters. He'll probably have fun with the hamsters. When his friends come over, he'll be like, probably want to show the hamsters off. Look at what that hamster can do in the wheel. That's my hamster. That's my other hamster. And, uh, and that will be a fun way that they can both show that they love the hamsters. Um, <laughs> And it is about, maybe when they're about 13 or 14, I would like you at this point to put up a picture of a thinner, slightly better looking Bob at a local bus stop. (laughs) Probably the one where he catches the bus to school, but it should say Bob underneath. Bob, a younger, thinner Bob, a better Bob. And there should be another poster of Al, slightly scruffier, slightly who cares. And I want them to stand at that bus stop every day. And at least once a day, when a Bob and Al come in, you should say, Al, you're looking great. Would you like to go outside and run around? And then you should say, Bob, have you put on weight? <laughs> Teach Al to use power drills. <laughs> Make Bob learn to use a washing machine. And then, as they hit the age of maybe 18, 19, 20, you will probably notice that Bob will have developed severe anxiety problems. <laughs> Bob will be a shell of a human being. Bob will have twitches. Bob will talk to himself. Bob will always feel shit about himself. Bob will wake up in the morning questioning his existence in the world. At this point, his pocket money will, of course, gone up to 20 quid a week. And Al's pocket money will have gone up to 40 fucking five. (laughs) Ask yourself, if you raise two boys like this, an Al and a Bob, what chance... Al has for success, what chance Bob has for success. And now, let's take this social experiment wide. Let's get twin boys all over the UK, all over America, all over the world. Let's take twin boys, name them Al and Bob. (laughs) And in 20, 50 years' time, see if it's an Al's world. Thank you very much. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online 
you'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Some of that went a little darker than I thought it was going to. At <laughs> some point it. they just went, I'm sad now. They felt, did you start to feel sad for Bob? I did. I love you guys. I am starting to slowly realise that comedians create audiences in their own image. (laughs) Like, you're the people that are going to come and see this. I feel like I did that in Jonglers. People would be like, who are these kids? Yeah, they'd be like, and then Bob, are they real? What's she on about? Bob, he sounds like a Nancy. (laughs) What was your challenge, Karen? Well, my challenge, Deborah, was because obviously there's... It is a man's world. I think that's a fair statement. But there are also men who don't agree with that. You know, there are men who are feminists and men who don't want to be caught up. They want, they're born on the wrong side. What can they say? You know, they're, on, they're Nazis. They're the Nazis. <laughs> they're the bad guys. They found out they're the bad guys. And I think it's quite hard if you're a man who's a feminist sometimes because you obviously get lumped in the same bubble as everybody else. So my challenge was to understand what it's like to be a man in a man's world. And this happened because, as I mentioned, I've just had a baby. And if you want to know what it feels like to be the man in a man's world, I recommend you have a baby and enjoy the maternity system. Because basically, the majority, and I don't think it's unfair, the majority of people I dealt with were women. So the majority of midwives are women, majority of nurses. And an amazing thing happened every time we went for an appointment. So my daughter was born with her hips weren't formed properly. Don't worry, guys. But apparently it's very common in women. Another thing we have to deal with. So we had to go to a lot of hospital appointments and ultrasounds and physiotherapy and only dealt with women. We never saw a man. They only spoke to me. They only made eye contact with me. Mm -hmm. If my husband asked a question, they would turn to me. I was, at this point, very high on a lot of drugs. Not recreational, just necessary drugs. They would tell me things, and I would be thinking please don't tell me. Like, I'm not in a position to... And it was really interesting because my husband would then come out and be really sad and be like, oh, no one, no one looked at me or mm. no one was listening to me. And I suddenly was like, oh, this is what it's like to be a man. <laughs> I was oh. like, wow, this is really... But I also felt the pressure. Mm. We had a big chat about it because I was like, you know, obviously it's nice to be the person that everyone's consulting all the time. Sure, great. But um, I also felt like pressured all the time as if I should always know what the right thing to do is and if mm. I should always have listened to everything. So we'd come away and he'd be like, oh, well, what do you think? And I'd be like, well, I don't know. And, but I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I think we should do this. I think that's what the doctor said. So I felt I had to be overconfident because it was expected that I knew the right answer. That's fascinating. Yeah, so, so I, d- I felt like a man. Yeah, so it kicked in your confidence yeah. because you'd been spoken to as if you were an authority. Yeah, everyone spoke to me like, I obviously was the only one with the answer. I obviously was the only one who would make the decision and would that's know the best thing to do. 
And you think about that is what people assume, well, if it comes to kids, a woman should know. You would always, well, what does the mother want to do? That's more important, even though, which is... That does play into my Bob and Al experiment. Yes, it does. That if you constantly pay someone 78p and then deny it when their equal is getting a pound or then make excuses for it. It's like gaslighting, isn't it? Yeah, and completely. I felt like, yeah, I guess I probably do know what to do with the baby. Mm. Because you're being treated like an authority. And they're like, well, mum knows best. Mum knows what she's doing. What do you want to do? And they also, they just call you mum. You don't have a name. What do you want to do, mum? Oh, I don't know. I'm not your mum. I bloody (laughs) hate that. Yeah. Oh, I hate that. You know, and my husband is a brilliant father. He's incredibly involved. That's why I'm here tonight, because he's looking after her. He looked after her all day, so I could go to various meetings. Like, he's amazing. And I felt so sorry for him, because sometimes he would genuinely be like... I've got a good question, you know, should we do this with her? Is it okay? And they just immediately turn to me and go, right, mum, what you need to do? Yeah. And I'd be thinking, I don't, I don't, I don't know. want to know everything. Yeah, yeah. Like give him some of the information. Yeah. But also, a man on a comedy show would never say, my wife's amazing, she looked after the baby all day, and then <laughs> no, again true. this evening so I could work. <clears throat> yeah. He wouldn't say that. That is true. And you feel... That's the thing he off, but he's good because often I say, "Oh, thank you for doing that," and he goes, "Why are you thanking me? Yeah. It, why wouldn't I do yeah, this?" Yeah, because we've been framed by society. Yeah. That's really interesting. So That's it was really nice. It was nice to feel like a man in a man's world. My yes, challenge, what was your challenge was my challenge was I thought, what is the most man's man's world that we have in London? Like, what's the epitome of this? Mm. And I thought of gentlemen's clubs who, yeah. over the last few years, they've been having these votes. Like, should we let women in? And every time it's like 60% of the membership says no. And you might think, well, they're bastions of privilege. Why do we even care? And the answer is because often a lot of very influential socialising goes on there. Yeah. So the one that I thought about, the one that I think is relevant to me, to my world, is the Garrett Club. And the Garrett Club oh, yeah, is for yeah. actors. And it's a gentleman's club for conversation, but that has extended into lawyers and barristers, mm. QCs and judges. And I started reading about it. And there were a lot of women saying so many influential conversations I had there. And the message, which is we need to retire from the ladies and have some serious, important conversation, is just not a great one. So I telephoned the Garrett (gasps) Club because I thought, I just want to have a chat. What I found fascinating (laughs) was this. Now, women are not allowed to be members of the Garrett Club at all. You could go at certain times with a male member... I looked down and there was these were the telephone numbers because it's all very old-fashioned on the website. It's amazing there is a website. You know, when you Google it, it's amazing that a butler doesn't come in with a white (laughs) napkin over his arm and a silver tray and say, the information you were looking for, madam. So there's the hall porter number, then the bedroom reservations and private party information. That contact is a woman. The club secretary. The person is a woman. The dining room is manager. That name, I don't know if it's a man or a woman. I think it might be a man. Membership and subscription, a woman. Charitable trust, a woman. Accounts office, a woman. Librarian, a woman. Curator of works of art, a woman. So they're all the people you can speak to. All the people that make this happen are all women. All the people looking after the men in the club. Yeah. But even like the membership. Going to see me in the club with my women looking after me. (laughs) It's funnily enough, the Garrett Club's theme tune. Um, this is exactly why we're not allowed in, because yeah, that was like that career. <laughs> um, so I thought, right, I'm going to phone up. And I decided to speak to the person in charge of membership and subscription. And I was very, very nice. And I, I wasn't sort of chatting. And I said, look, this is really, I don't want you to think this is a challenging phone call. I'm not from the press or anything. I do this podcast. It's a comedy podcast. And this is my challenge. I was just totally upfront. Sometimes I'm a bit, you know, no, I don't want to someone I'm not. <laughs> Hello, this is a man. May I join the Garrett Club? (laughs) 
my name is Deborah. Uh, I mean... Thomas. Um, <laughs> uh, can we do that? And then yeah, I'll stand on your so shoulders. funny. And we'll put a you coat could over do a us. coat. Yeah. <laughs> and then knock on the door yeah. of the character yeah, yeah. in a top hat. Um, um, uh, no, but, you know, sometimes I might sort of phone up with a less obvious agenda. So I just said, I genuinely... I'm interested that so many of the people making this club run are women mm. and that women aren't allowed. And I just wondered if I could ask you about that. And she went, I'm not allowed to comment on the policies of the club at all. And I'm sorry. And I said, OK, completely off the record. And at this point, I thought, if she does tell me, I will definitely not name the club or name yeah. her or anything like that because that's not fair. And so I said, completely off the record, just between you and me, how do you find that, that you're facilitating the needs of men? And she said... I'm very sorry, I can't comment. And I said, do you think there genuinely is a place for single-sex clubs, though? Is mm. there anything positive about this? And she went, I'm really sorry, I can't comment, I can't comment. And it became like The Handmaid's Tale. I was just about to say but that. She was yeah. like she was going, um, someone might come in at any moment, I'm really yeah. sorry, I'm going to have to go. Get the butter, send me butter, send me yeah. butter. Yeah. I can't go. You've got to read The Handmaid's Tale, guys. It's yeah. good. Um, it felt like, I must not comment, I cannot comment, I've got to go, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And she kept saying, I'm sorry, I can't help you, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And I was like, all right, it's not the sound of music. You're not in a chapel. We've got to be very quiet and not sing about our favourite things. Um, I was like, genuinely, it is just a question. I wasn't surprised she didn't comment. I was surprised she didn't say, look, we do get asked this question quite a lot. It's not up for me to say. I don't make the policy. Yeah. But if you write in to David, who is the president, I'm sure you'll get a nice answer. It wasn't like there was an answer. It was like, I've got to go. I can't comment. Bye. That's <laughs> what shocked me. You don't know. Maybe she's got in trouble before. Oh, like, no. Yeah, I'm, evidently, yeah. she's not allowed to say. I'm not blaming yeah. her in any way. Yeah. What surprised me... And I'm not worried, worried about saying it because no one from the Garrett Club is listening to the Guilty Feminist. <laughs> can you imagine? She is. If you can hear us, send a message in Morse code. We will come and rescue you. Anna has got her motorcycle. You do not have to stay at the Garrett Club. We will find you. Perhaps that's it. Yeah. Perhaps she listens to the Guilty Feminist and she was like, I cannot comment. I cannot comment. Help me, Guilty Feminist. You're my only hope. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I found oh that God. fascinating. So I started to look into it a little bit more as to what the history had been. And there have been yeah. votes in the last few years. Melvin Bragg's tried super hard, bless his socks. Has he? Oh, yeah, oh, he's Melvin. always trying to get us in. Not that I want to join the Garrett Club in any way, but I'm just interested in this yeah, sort of... it's interesting of, to know spaces that you're not allowed into yeah, and why. It's quite unusual. It's yeah. very specific to London and to the it's UK. It's very English. I do think it is very old-fashioned. I found a, an article in one of the broadsheets. Someone tried to get into Pratt's Club, which is another gentleman's club, which sounds like it's just name, guys. a little bit descriptive of its membership, in my opinion. Um, Let's go and school that on outside their wall. Uh, and it said, when I called Pratt's Club to ask whether women were admitted, the friendly steward, a woman, explained that they were not, with a logic that wasn't entirely easy to follow. They still don't allow women in because it is a supper club. We only open at seven at night. <laughs> Only, no, only at you. private lunches women are allowed then, as we do the lunches on a different floor, where you can menstruate freely. <laughs> Is there a lift? I'm in um, heels. And here was an interesting thing. Uh, yeah, Melvin Bragg and the writer John Mortimer tried and failed to influence fellow members. At the debate, one member recalls, a barrister speaking against the motion to admit women said, every now and then, I ask my wife for leave to have a night out at the Garrick with the chaps. If I were to ask for leave to go to the Garrick with the chaps and chapesses, it would not be granted. <laughs> 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 
there were huge guffaws of laughter. They thought it was hilarious. The result was 70% in favour of the status quo. And then I looked into this and I thought, why? Because a lot of the clubs have gone, yeah, well, we can't now, and we don't now, we don't want to now discriminate on the basis of race or disability or sexual orientation. So how are we still able to discriminate on the basis of gender? The Garrett Club hasn't given in, and a significant reason, apparently, is Winnie the Pooh. Oh, God, it's always Winnie the Pooh. Any guesses as to why Winnie the Pooh? Something to do with Christopher Robin? No. In 1956, A.A. Milne left a quarter of the royalties from his children's books to his club, the Garrett Club. In the year 2000, Disney bought the club's share of the rights for guess how much? Any guesses? 40 million. 40 million pounds. What? While other clubs welcomed women members and their membership fees, the Garrick hasn't needed them. <laughs> and economic drivers. So this is what I learned from That's this. gross, isn't it? Yeah. While, oh. while this is a little pocket of ridiculous and archaic influence that, you know, probably isn't, you know, and I know people at home will be going, there are far more important things. And there are. But what I found then, as I started to research the mechanics of that... And wherever there is a financial or economic driver to allow women more space or influence, space and influence are eventually granted. Mm. Where there is no economic driver in a capitalist society, we find pockets of misogyny that seem Victorian to us or even earlier. So I think what we need to start doing, this is what I learned, is make the economic case a lot more Mm. because we often go in on a social value platform where the people who have the influence and power to change are responding to an economic argument that's the same thing that's happened with the film industry so 50% of the tickets bought in America are bought by women and they've proven that if there's a strong female lead it will sell 8% more tickets to those women so they're trying at the moment to say to the industry it is economically viable for you to make films with strong female leads Welcome to a history lesson with Carrie Ad Lloyd. Thank you. It's a man's world. I'm going to give you a brief history of the phrase and the concept. As you know, Deborah, I am neither a qualified historian or a man, or indeed a celestial body moving in elliptical shape around a star. So here is my qualified version of the history of It's a Man's World. World is a planet, that's what that joke was. <clears throat> it always helps if you have to explain them. This is a man's world. This is a man's world. But it wouldn't be nothing, nothing, if we accept gender as a social construct. Man made the cars to take us over the road. Man made the train to carry the heavy load. Man made electric light to take us out of the dark. Then man made artificial intelligence and put everyone out of work. Men were invented at the start of the first ice age when a woman was cold and she thought it would be better to be warm by creating another human, but she was sadly disappointed that it wasn't. Being cold can be seriously underrated and eventually led to the creation of fossil fuels. (laughs) The song It's a Man's World, earlier so excellently performed by comedian Carrad Lloyd, (laughs) was written by James Brown and, did you know this, his girlfriend at the time, Betty Jean Newsom. Yes, Betty Jean Newsom. Newsom later claimed that she actually wrote all the lyrics and that Brown often forgot to pay her for royalties. But he also allegedly forgot that he had fathered three children, so swings and roundabouts. <laughs> the idea that we live in a man's world can be seen most prominently when faced with the film industry. I have some really depressing facts for you. Here we go. In 2007 to 2012, the top 500 films, 30.8% of the speaking characters were women. 30 <laughs> of the characters were women. This, of course, is understandable, as we all know how women are famous for not being very communicative, and sometimes our mouths are too full of chocolate or jizz. (laughs) 
<laughs> so it's understandable that a lot of the characters didn't speak. 26.2% of the women actors got partially naked compared to 9.4% of men. Again, this is entirely understandable when we remember that women's shoulders do not contain Velcro. So it's very common for our clothes to fall off. As anyone with a son will tell you, male babies are born with Velcro in their shoulders, and that's why it hurts even more when you give birth to a boy. The percentage of teenage females depicted with some nudity has increased 32.5% from 2007 to 2012. But then again, as we know, uh, no, I couldn't find a funny reason for this fact other than the hypersexualization of girls. That's the only reason that that must be happening. <laughs> I told you it was sad. In 2013, Forbes revealed that the top 10 highest paid actresses made a collective $181 million and the top 10 highest paid male actors made $465 million. If you'd like a handy way to imagine that money, I guess the best thing to say is that neither of those figures could buy you a house in central London. <laughs> of the top 100 films of 2016, females comprised 29% of protagonists. 78% of female characters had an identifiable job or occupation, compared to 86% of male characters. And 45% of female characters were seen in their work setting, actually working, versus to 61% of males. It's just incredible, isn't it? But as again, we know, women often don't have jobs in real life, so that's probably why it's not depicted in films. Um, it can be very hard to get out of bed, especially when your duvet is the patriarchy. <laughs> so I would say that it is a man's world. If you're watching a film which was produced in Hollywood, it's likely that you will think it is a man's world. If you were just living your best life, then the answer is to watch films with women as the lead roles, watch films made by female directors, and be aware of the world that they think they're showing you. Also, do be careful when sleeping with James Brown. Thank you. about how often we see women on the screen so, in a workplace. Oh yeah, this is, I found this amazing. So 29% of women are protagonists and then 78% of them have a job that's mentioned compared to 86% of men that's mentioned. But 45% of female characters are seen in their work setting actually working versus 61% of men. So you're more likely in a film to see a man have a job, say what his job is and see him at work whereas a woman will just be there. If she's at work, it's in PR and she's yeah. just sort of gossiping while walking with coffee. Yeah. <laughs> PR or fashion, that's mainly the ones, isn't it, that you'd see? In Hollywood films, obviously, we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's... which just makes you go, well, of course it is a man's world if that's the main thing yeah. that you're showing and matters, yeah, being yeah. seen. I know Gina Davis says a lot about this, doesn't she, that even the background characters are so often men, so even like people who work in banks or security guards or just like if they go to the cinema, the person behind the box is a man so that you grow up thinking, well, I guess I can't even work in a cinema. <laughs> mm. That is a fantastic segue to our guest. Yes. Our guest is a film star. Uh, yes, that's yes. right. Now, normally, we present you with some bedraggled stand-up comedian <laughs> who's frankly grateful for the gig. <laughs> Not tonight. No, no. Tonight, we've gone all fucking A-list. Roll out your red carpets, make general woohooing noises, and cheer and clap like a Hollywood shiny teethed American audience for Gemma Arterton! Hello. Come take a seat. I'm so excited to be here. I love the Guilty Feminist podcast. Aww. Thank you for having me. Oh, God, thank you for being here. 
You've been, in a way, a bit of a feminist icon of mine, Gemma, because you've always spoken out, even when you were very early on in your career. We should probably declare now, I'm going to declare this, I taught Gemma improvisation at RADA. Did you? At the RADA, yes, that's right. When I met Gemma, she was... was, 18. Were you? Bloody hell, how annoying. And (laughs) I, to be fair, had only recently left university and (laughs) and had gone to university at the age of 12. So... But then you came out, and quite early you became very successful. You got into St. Trinian's, uh, the movie, not school. Yeah, that really sounded like Gemma <laughs> went to like, St. Trinian's. It sounded like she applied for a private yeah. boarding school. Yeah. Um, and you then sort of got a lot of high-profile roles. And really early on you started to talk about the stuff that Carrie had been talking about tonight, about the autonomy your characters had, the amount of lines they had, the way they were sexualised or not sexualised, and also started choosing differently at a certain point. Yeah. What gave you the courage early on to talk in the media the way you did? I think because, first of all, I don't have any filter, so it was something that... It, it, I, I get in so much trouble all the time because I say things and, um, and I also sort of get a bit of satisfaction uh, mm. about sort of pushing it a little bit. But I did have... I did feel immense anger early on because I went through that Hollywood stuff. I don't really do it anymore. And it was pretty... Shit. I mean, you know, you're the only woman on set sometimes being spoken to like you're a three-year-old. And, you know, there was so... All of that stuff is true. And I couldn't help but talk about it. And I think it's because I was so upset, like Mm. deeply upset. It took me a long time to kind of deal with it. And actually dealing with it was sort of putting it out there, which would get me into even more shit because then I'd get retaliation from, you know, people that say, oh, shut up, you overprivileged actress or whatever and then you kind of fueling the fire stoking the fire but actually I just felt like I had to and I remember talking about body image really early on and nobody else was talking about it and then I remember I have somebody that helps me with press and she said well you know you don't have to be the spokesperson you are an actor you don't have to and then about Five years later, everyone started, you know, I'm not saying I was the first person. (laughs) Now it's great because everyone's talking about these issues, but before... You didn't talk about you it. Talking about, were you told to lose weight on one, one film you were on? They said something like that to you. They'd made a, an issue of your body or something. Yeah, yeah. On a few films. On yeah. a few films, they told you to lose weight. Yeah. Do really? they actually say that? Do they say it that clearly, or do they say it in a way that you're not allowed to defend yourself because they're saying, oh, you know, it would just be better with the character? Or well, they get you a personal trainer. Oh my god. They go. Hint. And there was one film that I was on and um, we were out in uh, Morocco and a couple of weeks went past and they literally were like, we need a personal trainer. Stat, you know, and they flew someone out overnight that gave up their whole life to wow. be with me and be my personal... You know when you say, oh, is it that fucking bad? That <laughs> I need... An emergency service. An emergency, you know, like on speed dial. Get that trainer out here now. And no. they would do things like... I laugh about it now, but it was so traumatic at the time. They'd measure me, and they'd call up the personal trainer at, like, nine at night going, is she in the gym? And if she isn't, why isn't she in the gym? And then they'd get me in the gym and film me in the gym, and and they'd have to know that I was there. And then there was one day where I went to get some snacks from... From they have like snacks on set, and I went to get some apricots, some dried apricots. And the man went, this big fat obese producer went, I hope you're not gonna eat that. <laughs> and I went, Do you know what? I'm gonna eat it. I'm gonna eat about probably about 20, and then I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna go eat all of the stuff in the minibar, and then I'm gonna vomit it up. I said that to him, and he was like, Great, great. <laughs> 
<laughs> but God. I was so angry. I mean, I was only joking, of course. I was eating a bloody apricot. But that was how it was, you know, yeah. early on. I was only 21 as well. And then I think, you know, it made me angry. It made me so angry and I couldn't help myself but talk about it. And people don't ask me any other questions. <laughs> well, I want to ask you other questions because I went to see Their Finest... Uh, which is, which oh, is yeah, a movie about a woman in the Second World War who was allowed to be a screenwriter. She when was allowed. Women, she was allowed, she was permitted to be a screenwriter because there weren't enough men because they were fighting. Yeah. And in the movie, they get her in to write the female dialogue, which they call the slop. Yes. Which is horrible. So it's a fictionalised version. Uh, there was a real woman that worked for Ealing Studios during the time writing screwball comedies and propaganda films called Diana Morgan, who was brought in to write The Nausea, which was the female dialogue. That's what they called it. They and she called it The Nausea. Yeah, anything that women said, was they had to bring a woman in to write because they were like... <laughs> we don't... Well, well, I can't. What I can't even. Say? I just feel very It just sick. makes me feel sick. I yeah. can't even. It makes me feel ill to think about what a woman might say. I had some pate. It was bad, but not as bad as that woman talking <laughs> right now. Blah, 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 blah. That's all I hear when they speak. Like, I like saw the Peanuts a, teacher. I sort of love, like, in the war that the, there's... Because I think now it's quite hard to call sexism out sometimes because you're sort of like, oh, are they being sexist? But in the war, it was just out and out. Yeah. No, no, I think when you speak, it makes me feel physically sick. It's just like... <laughs> Okay, cool. I know where I stand. I know exactly where I stand. Thank you. Yeah. So you were that character who got to write The Slop, The Nausea. Yeah. And in that film, she sort of comes into her own a lot yeah. and sort of starts to say... What I loved about it was that she said what we're always saying when we watch films, which is, why can the female characters not do anything? Yeah, there's a great line in it where the female characters are kind of... She tries to get them to kind of save the day, be the heroes, and the, the male guy says, well, you know, women don't want to be the hero. They want to be had by the hero. Mm. <laughs> you think, oh, God, that's absolutely awful. Or at but least I guess pick it... up and spun round by the hero. Yeah. Like, at, at the I most. kind at of least. want both. Yes. Yeah. I want to yes. be the hero yeah. and to be had by another yeah. hero. And by be had by, I mean be had by. <laughs> but that's to, to know the that's hero. the thing. Is Isn't that what Wonder Woman does? Yeah. Is it? No, does she? She spins herself around. She Harry does! <laughs> She spins, she spins herself spins. around. See, she doesn't wait for a man to spin she around. She does it herself. She's tall too. She's an Amazon. Yeah, yeah. She's but she is also wearing a very ill-fitting, constricting outfit. Maybe that's why she spins herself around. Yeah, oh, God, trying to get God, out. down the wrong <laughs> hole again. <laughs> do you feel this, Carrie? Because you do a lot of oh. acting as well. I don't do very much acting. Acting. I do. Acting. 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 I do more writing uh, and comedy. But well, I, I'm in a position of like... Should I say the truth? Any casting directors out, please switch off your podcast now. Um, well, I'm not working now because I've had a baby, so they won't touch me for that they reason. They won't touch you anyway. Sure, um, so yeah, fine. So, yeah, in comedy, it is a bit of generalisation, but in comedy, if you have brown hair, you are the sassy best friend. You get to do funny things, but they're not as funny as the main guy who's the man, but at least you don't have to play his girlfriend who's blonde and she just crosses her arms and goes, oh, you, what you like? <laughs> and you get to go, he's awful, and that's it. <laughs> That's a lot of what you get. That's sent a lot. Of, and why do you keep doing that? Because <laughs> they pay. They pay. So I see it as I'm a comedian. So I get to do all my stuff that I want to do. But if someone wants to pay me, usually the man gets the punchline. Yeah, always, always. But if you can get on a decent set and you can improvise and you can steal a punchline, I mean, the men they don't like it when you do that. But if you can just like afterwards be like, oh, oh did I say something funny? Oh, don't worry, they'll let it out. <laughs> and like try and convince them it won't stay in. But you sort of know the director will choose the funniest thing. 
it's you have to so play the game. You have to play the game. Fucking yeah. terrible that we're still having to play those games, yeah. though. Yeah, and definitely. They, a lot of it's unconscious, though. Like, even with the lovely film Their Finest, which I adore and is a great film, my boyfriend watched it. He was like, "That's such an unfeminist film <laughs> because you're always shot on the at film school. You'll learn that." So the strong point of view is the left-hand side to the right, because that's how we read. And I'm always on the right-hand side. So mm. stuff like that. And he was like, and you never get the punchline. And I said, oh, my God, I never get the punchline. How yeah. dare? That, so even though that film is completely about a woman and it's a woman's experience and it's... And also... Directed by a woman, written by, by a woman, woman based on a book by a woman, I think it's so deeply ingrained yeah. in us yeah. to kind of end the shot on the man rather mm. than the woman or, you know... Sometimes I think we're not even aware that we're doing it. I mean, I wouldn't be aware of the screen thing, which I will be now, from now on. <laughs> Put me on the other side. Would you, but would you say that now? Would you say No, of course I wouldn't. <laughs> I've noticed that. Um, <laughs> I want to be on the strong side of the screen, please. It might be worth having a conversation. Would you direct now and yes. look at yes, putting... Yes, Absolutely. Will I you direct yourself in something and put yourself on the strong side of the screen? <laughs> yes. And you, what you could do is you could play both parts. Strong side, weak side, strong side, weak side. And then, call, and then call Cart yourself. That's what I heard Russell Crowe does. He just calls Cart when he's had enough. He just goes, Cart. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, mean... apparently, I heard this in Les Mis. They would just film and he'd go, Cart, and he'd just walk off and they'd go, oh. that's the end of the day, guys, that's it. But what, I mean, what, what the confidence. Of that <laughs> yeah, man. I know, it's incredible. But isn't do you it? know what? I heard Guy Pierce talking about Russell Crowe, because you know how he's famous for throwing phones at people. Oh, yeah. allegedly, allegedly, if you're listening, allegedly. Russell Crowe's people. Allegedly, according to Guy Pierce, who allegedly said, no, I saw him say it, he did say it. Um, he said, You think Russell Crowe is an asshole because he's famous. He's not. He was always an asshole. <laughs> and he said, We both got picked up. They'd both done famous indie films in Australia, but they right. were indie films. And he said, well, You're all where you can have one great indie and that in Australia doesn't mean anything yeah. so we were both taken to Hollywood to be in LA Confidential oh, yeah. and we were given an accent coach because they said it's not just LA it's LA 1950s no one speaks like this anymore it's so specific and we really want it to be authentic and Russell Crowe said no I won't be needing that and refused to have the accent coach and Guy Pierce was like what um, I, and so of, he said, I sort of love his incredible arrogance. It's, it's, it's and hilarious. he just said, no, I'm not doing it. Yeah, but a woman wouldn't survive. If oh, a woman no. said, no, no I'm no, not no. doing it, Gemma's not even going to ask to be on the strong side of the screen. <laughs> I mean, do you see what I mean? It's the strong that, side of the, the screen. The strong side of the screen, which I'm now going to insist that you're on. I am going to watch it again, but I'm going to make someone flip it. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to be like, yep, yep. And I'm going to watch it back so you get the end of the scene and the punchline. I'd love to get the punchlines. I'll write you something where you get the punchlines. Carrie Ad and I will write you. Yeah, we will, you. definitely. We'll write you a, a oh, film called Punchline. This? I find when I'm writing stuff, sometimes I give the men the punchline when I'm writing. I have to go back and go, oh, Carrie Ad, you've been conditioned to do that. And the woman's just going, oh, boys. I do it myself sometimes. <laughs> I know. I've gone back over old scripts yeah. and gone, these did not pass the Bechdel test. Yeah, it's so weird, isn't it? You're and doing I've it to yourself. Changed, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've changed police officers to women yeah, and yeah. given them names yeah. so that it does. <laughs> it's like instead of like policeman one, police officer, Grady. <laughs> boom. 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 Oh, boom. look, the two of them are talking about arresting someone and they're both women. Boom, we're boom. done. done. Um, 
That's not right, is it? That's not okay. Gemma, are you working on sort of? So, you, would you direct? Would you produce? Do you have? Do you find it easy to control it your own way? Yeah. So, a result of my <laughs> immense anger was me becoming a producer and setting up this production company called Rebel Park. Oh, and, nice. um, and it's Rebel all... Park. I yeah. love That's that. where Anna lives. Anna, Anna lives in Rebel Park. Yes. <laughs> where do you yes. want to go? Rebel do you want to be in my film, Anna? Well, you can be anything. Um, just say what you want to do. I'll put you on the strong side of the screen. And all, I'll tell you what, the strong side of the screen is the side of the screen that Anna is yeah, on. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. She could be anywhere and it's the strong side. Yeah. We'd start reading in right and left if Anna's there. Sure, why not? Anna told us to. So you're producing yeah. your own stuff. Yeah, and it's all female-centric stuff. So you said strong female earlier, which is the term that's used in America for films that have a woman in them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, which I think is ridiculous. So I say female-centric because you don't have to be strong to be interesting. You can be weak or you can be flawed or you can be struggling or you can be whatever. We have to put these people out there and not everyone has to be inspirational and strong. So it's all female-centric. My next project I'm working on is a two-hander between two women. Nice. Whoa, who's going to watch it? What side oh, will they look at? There's not a man. They will be like, I'm looking left to right, but I only see women. <laughs> <laughs> the end of the scene has a woman in it and she got the punchline. Oh, I'm scared of this film. Yeah. I'm, honest, I'm honestly scared of the power. Yeah. Can you tell us what the film's called? It's called Vita in Virginia and it's about oh. Vita Sackville West and Virginia Woolf. Amazing. Oh. And it's Andrea Riseborough. So it's Let's you and Andrea Rise were playing Vita and Vanessa Virginia, Wolf. Virginia, Virginia sorry, Wolf. not Vanessa. That's what I said. Um, and it's about when Virginia Woolf wrote Orlando, which is a book about a, a, a man and a woman in the same body, which was inspired by Vita Sackville West, who was her lover and friend. So that's one that I'm doing. Wow. And then another one is another female-centric film, which I went into a production meeting today and they said, yeah, we'll make this film and we'll give you all the money if you can make her a really, really old character. The character's like 22. And we can put a dame in it, basically, because that's what would finance it. Um, you can put a dame in it? Yeah. Well, what, I, like a Judy Dench? Yes. There's oh. nothing like a dame. Yeah, a dame. <laughs> yeah. That's the I wish they'd one. said if that. If you can hold on long enough, you can become a dame. Yeah. And then you're allowed to work again. You can there's work, a, then you can There's an yeah. early work, then there's a gap, then and then there's those who just white-knuckle ride it out yeah. to damehood. <laughs> who're like, I'm not fucking going away. I will play whatever you want here. me to play. Until I get to roles where I've got dementia. Yeah. And then the men are like, fair play, guys, she's still here. She stuck it out. Like, she stuck it out. I'll watch that. Yeah. yeah. They gave you the nevertheless she persisted yeah. badge. She reminds me um, of my granny. Yeah. And okay. then the other one is a comedy. Yeah. Oh, that I've been developing about pregnancy. And it's ridiculous and very silly. And I think there might be some women that get punchlines. Although I'm thinking about that now. I'm like, the funniest part is absolutely a guy. Mm. Can you just change that character to a woman? Yes. Would it work? Yes. Just change it. Just That's change it the key, woman. yeah. The best thing Always is just to it. change at the last, write the whole thing for a man and at the last minute, you just change it to a woman and you have them peeing sitting down. <laughs> that is the success of the Hunger Games, explained. I swear. She wrote a man and then she just changed yeah. the name and everyone went, this is an amazing character. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I it's love the Hunger so Games. So we have to do on all our scripts a Hunger yes. Games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where we see those parts. I'm increasingly doing that now. I have done the same thing. I've written parts and then gone, oh, I'm just going to make that woman because she's being really funny yeah. because it was a man and I somehow gave him all the funny lines. Well, look, we're all trained by the patriarchy. Yeah. If you think about J.K. Rowling... Um, who is amazing, 
wrote a book in which the lead was a boy, the best friend was a boy. There's the Hermione, who's the sort of you know sidekick girl, but it's not her story. And there's a lot of strong women in it. Yeah. But the lead teachers are generally blokes. Now that's not because J.K. Rowling is a big throbbing misogynist. Clearly, she isn't. She's an incredibly active, powerful feminist. Why are you laughing? Because I said throbbing misogynist. <laughs> what an English audience! Oh, throbbing. <laughs> I mean, I like your feminism, but also, well, sounds like a penis. <laughs> That's the kind of sex line they'd yeah. go for. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Would you like to hear from a throbbing misogynist? <laughs> um, what was it? J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling. A throbbing misogynist. J.K. Rowling is a hugely powerful active feminist. But we've all, in our lifetime, seen more stories about boys. Yeah. And it's really easy for me to go, well, what's happening to him rather than what's happening to her? This is my same argument about female comedy, in that people go, oh, well, sitcoms with women don't work as well. It's like, you don't have the vocabulary of what women find funny. So, like, I grew up watching Blackadder and Red Dwarf and Men Behaving Badly, and I learned very quickly, it's funny if a man does that. And because we didn't have as many female role models, when you present a female sitcom, some men are genuinely like, I didn't know that that's funny. And you're like, it is funny when a woman can't find a tampon and she has to make it at a broad city out of a Jewish yarmulke and a piece of string. That is funny. <laughs> when they do it on Broad City, which is an amazing sitcom written by two women. But I think it's just because people aren't, they just don't have the, like, the references because we haven't mm. seen it. Yes, no, completely. And, but not all female jokes have to be about tampons. No, yeah. I, just mine. Some, <laughs> all like, mine are about tampons. Some, some <laughs> things, like, I just feel like if a woman does it, it will be funny. But I think sometimes when things are overproduced... No, I'll tell you what it is. If a sitcom fails, they think that sitcom's failed. And sometimes they'll go, ah, oh, because studio sitcoms don't work anymore. Yeah. And they'll go, if a sitcom with a woman in it fails, they'll go, ah, oh, sitcoms with women in it don't yeah. work. But look how proportionally how many male-driven sitcoms have oh, failed. But they never go, must be men. There was People a don't like men. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't work with a man in it, see? The we tried one with a man. The last female sketch shows, so there was Anna and Katie on Channel 4, and there was Watson Oliver on BBC Two. And they asked them both all the time. They said, oh, what's it like? Because you've got two females at the same time. At that same week, they both were on. On a Friday night, you could watch Armstrong and Miller and Mitchell and Webb. Armstrong and Miller, Mitchell, switch them around. There's four white guys doing quite similar sketches and nobody questioned that they had one two One time shows. they did shuffle up and no one said anything. <laughs> they did that trick. Yeah, it was and, like twins, you know, yeah. in maths class. Mitchell and Webb, yeah. I swear to you, one week switched with Armstrong, Armstrong and, and Miller. You still don't know about it to this day. <laughs> Do you have anything to plug? No. <laughs> you do. Has anyone ever said no? No, no. Well, yeah, no, they just say follow my Twitter, but you're off the social media. I'm off social media. Because you can't, can you? I just, just can't be dealing with it. No, um, and rightly so. Yeah. I wish um, I was off social media. Yeah. It's horrible. Well, so you could plug being off social media. Uh, yeah, I could plug that. Do you have a movie out at the moment? I do have, well, Their Finest is out at the moment. And if you're in France, there's another one called Orpheline, which is about a one girl's life told by five different actresses. And it's really interesting. So if you're in France, then watch that but yeah those those great okay super <laughs> and Carrie Lloyd do you have anything to plug I do a podcast all about death called Griefcast where I interview comedians about death it's actually much cheerier than it sounds and you can download or subscribe to that super and I have a comedy panel show called Global Pillage at globalpillage.net uh, it's diversity based if you're a white straight man you can only play if you bring another sort of diversity like international <laughs> um, 
but it's a lot of fun. Please listen to it. And also Standard Issue Magazine, which are our great friends. We love Standard Issue Magazine, and Carrie and I both wrote for them. Due to the fact they've refused to compromise on advertising, they've had to wind up the site. It's all there. You can go and look at the archive. But I think they're doing an easier thing, which is podcasting. (laughs) And so if you listen to Standard Issue podcasts you will have a lovely time and I think it's a probably quite a similar demographic. Yeah, they're amazing shows and they do live shows with interviewing four different mm. women all you about their lives as well. Go to those as well. You can follow The Guilty Feminist on Twitter at guiltfempod. Check out our Instagram, instagram.com forward slash The Guilty Feminist. Like our Facebook page, sign up to our mailing list to get notified as soon as a new episode is released and please, please, because it does matter, go to iTunes and rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast. And give it five stars. <laughs> <laughs> You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest host, Harriet Lloyd, and our very special guest, Gemma Arterton. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. The music was by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Zalinski for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Zoe, Meta, Sally, and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Thank you very much. Good night. to being mic'd by a boom mic, presumably. Or a tiny little mic in between your breasts. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping them warm. Yep. Um, <laughs> that was a bit of a tits out for the lads, that was. Yeah. Um, so, and if you haven't kept the earlier thing in, please don't keep that bit in. <laughs> when God, you're editing it. Very, I've just suddenly thought aggressive. of my own edit there, that I just went, no, I don't want that in. She was really hitting on yeah, Gemma. She brought Gemma out and then went, get your tits out for the lads. I mean, yeah. It was so inappropriate. Um, I'm used to it. Uh, <laughs>